Welcome to Hope Plus, a podcast for Hope Community Church. If you're a new listener, we encourage you to check us out at hopecommunity.ca or find us on social media. We hope you enjoy this podcast. We're going to continue our sermon series on the book of Galatians. Last week, Pastor Sid preached on the gospel and the ways that we distort it, the ways that we, we shift it to make it no longer good news about Jesus Christ. And for the next two weeks, we're looking at how or what it means really to be part of God's family. And you'll probably notice at different points that when you distort the gospel, you will also distort what it means to be part of God's family. Those things are linked together. And this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Galatians by reading some of chapter 3. And if you have your Bible on your phone or the old school physical Bible, turn with me uh, to the book of Galatians, and we're going to read chapter 3, 1 to 14, and then jump over uh, to verse 28 and 29. I love how Paul starts this passage, nice and fiery. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you trying now to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by observing the law? or by your believing what you heard. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says whoever does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And now to verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When I was just getting to know my wife, Brittany, in university, she invited me over to meet her family, and in one of those first meetings with the family, they were having a conversation together, you know, I'm on best behavior. And uh, her brother, Ben... Uh, shared this phrase. He said in the course of conversation, he said, wait, 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 who is Moscow? And then all the Goheens broke out into laughter, and I stood there having no idea why that was funny. And I finally had the guts to say to Brittany, what did Ben just say, and why are you all laughing? 
And then she's like, oh, right, you don't know the backstory. And she explained how she had a, a classmate in university who was studying for an exam. And in that studying for the exam, she thought Moscow was a person and not a place. And ever since that point, it's become a family joke in the Goheen family when they say, who is Moscow? And then it finally made sense to me. But perhaps you've had your own experience of the who is Moscow, where you enter into a conversation, you're listening, trying to piece together, and it makes absolutely no sense because you don't know the backstory. If you've experienced that, you can understand what I think it might feel like to read Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is a complicated passage. In fact, it might very well be, according to some writers, the most complex piece of writing from Paul. So if you're a little bit confused by what we just read, it's okay. But also, I would say Galatians 3 doesn't make any sense until you know the backstory. Paul assumes so much when he writes this letter of Old Testament story, of Old Testament people, right? And so Paul is just bringing these things into the foreground, and if we don't know the backstory, we're not going to understand. For example, he talks about blessings and curses. These are Old Testament things related to the law. He mentions eight times the person of Abraham because Abraham is a big deal in the Old Testament story. And what we want to do this morning is open up that story, and hopefully if you're new to the Christian faith or you're just reading the Bible, I hope actually that you'll get some clarity around the story of the Old Testament that helps us understand why Jesus matters, how Abraham fits into the story, and how we understand the law in relation to Jesus. No pressure, Dave, in one sermon. Yeah, I feel it. The reason Paul mentions Abraham eight times in Galatians 3 is likely because there are these agitators, the Judaizers, who are coming into the churches in Galatia and saying to people, hey, if you want to be part of God's family, which is Abraham's family, this is how you have to live. There's works of the law, there's the practice of circumcision, and they're using Abraham as their example, saying if he did these things, then you have to do these things. And Paul, being quite fired up by what's happening in these churches, he says, let me tell you how Abraham fits into the story. So I'm going to read for you verse 7, and then we're going to go to the back story and come back to Galatians 7 in a few minutes. So this is how Paul starts when he talks about Abraham. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, if that's clear as mud, it's okay. We're going to work through this together. But let me just summarize what Paul is trying to get at here, and then we'll work it out. Paul is saying, number one, the faith in God, or sorry, the essence of the Christian faith is always faith, not just works of the law. Abraham, from the very beginning, who's sort of the beginning of God's people, was a man of faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So faith is at the center. But equally important, says Paul, is that the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham. And what was that gospel? That the nations would be blessed, that the blessing of God would move through Abraham to the nations. And I'll say this once and return to it. God's plan from the beginning was to have a global, multi-ethnic, diverse church. That was the plan from the beginning, that his people, unified by faith, would be unified by the nations coming in by faith to Jesus. So here's the backstory. In Genesis 3, God's good world came undone through an act of rebellion, through sin. 
Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and all of a sudden this new sickness, this new disease that is sin started taking hold of human hearts and creating havoc. We see murder, we see jealousy, we see hate, we see lying, we see stealing. We see all sorts of corruption taking hold of humanity. God sends a flood to bring judgment and renewal. Even after the flood, we see sin just spreading through humanity. And it all culminates, you might say, in Genesis 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, where humanity comes together, not for worship, not to adore God, but to build themselves this structure that shows just how significant humanity is without God. And God's response after Genesis 3 to 11 narrates the unraveling of humanity, His response to the wickedness of human hearts, His response to the deadliness of disobedience, of idolatry, is Abraham. Genesis 12, right on the heels of the Tower of Babel, God goes to this man named Abram at the time, and He says, Abram, I've got a plan. I'm selecting just you out of all of humanity as a new start, you might say. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enable you to flourish. I'm going to teach you how to live. And as you flourish, the nations will flourish and my blessing will flow through you to them. Let me show you how God says it in Genesis 12. This is, in some sense, such an important verse for the whole Old Testament story. Because God starts with Abraham and he says to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. A few chapters later, God binds himself in a covenant which is just a really deep promise and he says to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you the what? The father of nations. I'll stay, say the point again. God's plan from the beginning was a global, multi-ethnic family of faith. And he's now working through Abraham to make this possible. And if you know the story, Abraham has a child. Abraham and Sarah have a child. And then that child has children, and that becomes the people of Israel. That people becomes so vast, they go into slavery, and God, who's making good on his promise to Abraham, redeems them from slavery, brings Israel to himself in the wilderness, and he says to them, you are my people. You are the nation that I've pulled aside. You are my representative people to the world, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to teach you my ways. You are going to flourish as you know me and follow me, and the nations are going to see that goodness and follow in the ways after you. This is where the law comes in. This is such an important detail. The law is not some oppressive thing that God adds to their lives. It's not some cruel thing. It's kind of like a parent whose kid who doesn't know how to live saying, let me teach you the way of life. So God gives the Ten Commandments, and he gives all sorts of case law and contextual law, including things as detailed as this. Make sure when you build your house, put a roof around the, or put a, a fence around the roof so the people don't fall out of your house. That's in the law. Because God cares that our homes are places where people are safe. And God says to them, you follow my law and you're going to flourish. If you don't, it's going to be painful. And this is, by the way, where we get that word of curse. But before I get to curse, let me just say this. Deuteronomy 4, fascinating passage. It shows the nations around Israel looking in on their life together and saying, whoa, Look at the justice of this society. Look at the care for the poor. Look at how the families are flourishing. Look how this whole society is flourishing. That was the plan. 
For God calling Abraham, moving to the people of Israel, giving them the law, placing them in Canaan, it was so that the nations would come into this community and experience blessing. Now I want to talk about this word that is curse. Now, first of all, when you hear the word curse, what do you think? What's in your brain right now? Is it Harry Potter? Ah. So I just want to say, when we hear the word curse, we're hearing something different than the Bible talks about when it says curse. Curse in the scriptures is perhaps best explained this way. If blessing means the favor and protection of God, curse is the absence of that. If blessing is the fullness of human life in relationship, curse is the absence and the emptiness of life in relationship when we live at a distance from God. It is sort of the removal of shalom, the removal of flourishing. That's what curse is. And in Deuteronomy 27 to 30, which actually are very important background passages for Galatians 3, it spells out very clearly, if you follow the ways of God, the instructions of God, if you listen to Him with a whole heart, you will be flourishing and blessed. And if you don't, you will experience curse. In fact, one of the very specific curses that's spelled out is exile, that the the Israelites will lose their land. So if you know where the story goes from there, the Israel gets the law, they get put on the land, and then they chose the hard way. They rejected God's goodness, they didn't want to follow after his ways, they kept chasing the gods of the nations, rejecting the law, and what happened? The curse. In fact, the very exact thing that was predicted in Deuteronomy 27, they lost their land. And four nations came in and defeated them, subjected them, and made them slaves to those nations' interests and those nations' priorities. And if you're a first-time reader of the Bible, and you work your way through Genesis all the way to Malachi, it is actually quite a strange and confusing ending. We don't talk enough about this. The goal from the beginning was God to bring Abraham to himself, to form this people of Israel so that the nations experience blessing. And the Old Testament finishes with that nation experiencing curse and the very nations they're supposed to bless oppressing them. And you have to think, okay, well, what's the plan here? And maybe the easiest way to summarize the Old Testament story, I hope this is helpful, is when the sickness of sin covered over God's good world and and crept in the hearts of God's humanity, God chose Israel as a healing nation to sort of bring healing to where the sickness was. But what we realize at the end of the Old Testament is that Israel is just as infected by the sickness of sin as all the other nations. And now we're stuck with this thing that is the mess in the nations and in God's special people, Israel. With all this background in mind, this Old Testament story, I now want to read for us Galatians 3, 13 and 14. And I hope it's going to just piece some things together for us. We read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Does this make a little bit more sense now? Let me walk us through some of the movement. Number one, let me underscore Paul's main concern is to recognize that the law of the Old Testament could not solve the problem of sin. It could not curb human hearts and people even knowing what was good and knowing the good instruction of God chose the way of curse. So the movement now of Galatians 3 is the whole world lives in rebellion under the curse. God's representative people who were chosen for blessing also chose the way of the curse. And now, here's the good news. 
there is a representative within Israel who's going to take on the curse, and that is Jesus. For Paul, the good news is, yes, the curse is spread. Yes, it's infected Israel. But good news, church, there is a representative within Israel who's going to become that curse, Jesus Christ. He takes on the punishment for disobedience. He takes on the consequence for sin. He takes on the consequence of rebellion. Or as we read in the Scriptures, He takes on the cup of judgment of God's wrath for the sake of humanity's rebellion so that we would be free from under the curse. And He does it once and for all on the cross. And for Paul, over and over, he's like, that's the point of liberation. That's the point where we get redeemed. It wasn't in the law. It wasn't in any former time. What liberates us once and for all is the death and resurrection of Jesus. He just keeps harping on that point in Galatians. But here's the why. This is the good news. This is where we come into the story of Galatians. Paul writes, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might what? Come to the Gentiles so that through Christ, by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That is to say, God's plan with Abraham can now finally move forward because the curse of sin has been dealt with. And then that means very specifically that all of us Gentiles, we are the Gentiles, who call on the name of Jesus and put our faith in Him, we get grafted into the family by faith. Every one of us who says, I believe in Jesus, I want to follow Him, I receive His grace by faith, we join the family. We receive the Spirit. And man, I can already look forward to, in two weeks' time, the amazing things Paul says about the Spirit in contrast to the law, but that's a different sermon. Let me finish with how Paul finishes Galatians 3 and work out some of these beautiful words with you. Galatians 3.28, he says to the church, So in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I don't have time to preach on this today, but when Paul says you are heirs according to the promise, he says to the church, by faith, you get to inherit the earth. After death, your bodies will rise and the creation will be renewed and you will live on it forever because the promise to the church is eternal life in a resurrected world with resurrected bodies. God's plan all along, it was a multi-ethnic global church that is united by faith. And can we just stop and marvel together that even as we worship, we get to taste that together. I mean, there's a lot of us here from different parts of the world, different backgrounds, and we get to worship Jesus together. This week in my office, I wrote down just a quick list of the countries that I know of that are represented in our church. And I'll read them off. If you're missing, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I just forgot about your country. So here we go. Whenever you make a list, you always forget someone. In our church, people worship from Taiwan, Korea, China, the Philippines, India, Nigeria, Ghana, Holland, Honduras, El Salvador, Venezuela, even the U.S. and Canada. Praise the Lord for the diversity of the church. This was the plan all along. The plan when God called Abraham was that we would share in the blessing 
that our lives would be put back together by the work of Jesus, that we could experience the fullness of life. That was the plan. And here we are worshiping Jesus as part of proof that the work of Christ was accomplishing exactly what it needed to, that God's family is a global, multi-ethnic family. Now, just in the last couple weeks, I've been able to meet with some of the people in our church who are new from different parts of the world. You're going to meet some of them next week as we have our new members welcome and we baptize two people. Uh, But two families that I met with, one was from China, the other was uh, originally from India and then Qatar. And it was such a privilege, I'm looking for some of them right now, I see one of them, Avesh and Siali, such a privilege to hear the stories of how they came to faith, hear the stories of how people share the gospel with them, the churches they found, the people who discipled them, and I just get to see, wow, God is at work in Qatar and India and China. He's at work in all these places. He's forming churches, planting churches, raising up leaders. Praise the Lord for that. But equally so, I I was talking with someone after the 9 a.m. service about this. I had one of those moments where your heart is burning within you, thinking to yourself, this person who is discipled by someone in Shendu or Southeast Asia, they are now sitting with me in my office and we're brothers and sisters in faith. What an amazing reality that we get to share in the life of the Spirit. We get to share in being part of Abraham's family because of what Jesus has done. Praise the Lord that we get to be the church that we share in the blessing that God promised thousands of years ago. Amen. And I could say a lot more about this, but I want to be short. Did that come up on the screen? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Trev. In Galatians 3.28, one of the things that he's trying to communicate is the beautiful way in which everyone comes into the church by grace and there can be no upper and lower class. So when he says there's no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, what he's saying is everyone enters the church as equals. And that means there's no lording over anybody, your socioeconomic class. There's no lording over anyone, the kind of family background you came from or your ethnicity. We are all one in Christ. And I'll just share a little bit personally that I grew up in a Dutch community predominantly, Dutch Canadian, a lot of immigrant families. And you don't know this, but you kind of grow up with a sense of pride with the culture you grew up in. And that's a good thing. It's good to love the the formation, your background. But I have learned that at least I can only speak for Dutch culture, that there's lots of phrases we use and lots of statements we make that suddenly make ourselves better than everybody else, right? We look down on everyone. And I think part of that is Dutch people are so tall, they just naturally look down on people. And jokes aside, let me just put it this way. There is no room for that in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Jews struggled with. As the Gentiles came in, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're not quite Jewish enough. And Paul says they are exactly what God wanted in his church. All the cultures, all the ethnicities, that was the plan from the beginning by faith. And so there's no room for saying, ah, that person, I don't know how they made it in. That culture, surely they know that our culture is better than theirs. And it's all sorts of subtle things in the church where we say, we're here, you're there. And Paul says the gospel is the great equalizer. It is the place where every single person who comes in the family of Christ comes by the grace of Jesus through the faith we share with our brothers and sisters. And there are no second-class citizens in the church. May the Lord have mercy on us for the ways we subtly and not so subtly have those things in the body of Christ. Because he says we are one in Christ Jesus.
And what a gift it is to be one in Christ. I mean, this is sort of maybe a trivial example, but it's not to me. I grew up in a call, I love Dutch food. That's why I make olibullen on our, our front lawn at New Year's. But I realized as I got to know some people from India and Korea and other places in the world that there are actually a lot more spices in the cupboard than salt and pepper. <laughs> and uh, once you taste some of those spices, I see a couple in the back that they, they introduced me to jollof rice that I almost died of heat. But it was amazing. <laughs> We need each other, and we will be enriched by each other, and God delights when the diverse body of Christ comes together in real meaningful unity to share fellowship, to share food, to be a family in Christ. And I'm convinced that's probably why I love doing communion so much at Hope. I love having these tables set up, and the elders and deacons, they stand behind these tables, and you see people from different backgrounds different parts of the city, different parts of the country, different parts of the world, with different pain and hardship, whatever our story is, and we walk up together, we receive the elements, and we get to hear God say to us through his leaders, the blood of Christ shed for you, the body of Christ given for you, you belong in the family because of the grace of Christ, just like everyone else in the church. I love it, the unity of the body of Christ. And I will say this as well, that when we live in unity, meaningful unity, we demonstrate the power of the gospel. The law did not create a unified, diverse family, but Jesus Christ did. And when we live in meaningful unity ethnic, with our ethnicity, with our different socioeconomic backgrounds, male and female and all the rest, we show to a polarizing, tribalizing, cancel culture that we live in that the gospel does have power. We show that we can live together as brothers and sisters by our united faith in Jesus Christ. And that will always be a powerful witness in whatever culture you live in where there will always be something that wants to tear us apart, something that wants to make us live as first or second class citizens. The gospel has power. And we demonstrate that in our unity. And I'll just say again. I do think that one of the ways we respond to a passage like Galatians 3 is to marvel that we are living in the very thing God had in his mind when he called Abraham. The blessing, the flourishing, the shalom and the life of God flowing to the nations, we are receiving that because Jesus dealt with the curse. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought us into your family. We thank you that this was your plan all along, and even as we drove it into the ground in disobedience, in idolatry, enslaving ourselves to all sorts of things that do not bring life, you came in Jesus. We praise you that Jesus has dealt with the curse. We praise you that he drank the cup of judgment. We praise you that we have been set free. Lord, would you unify us in the gospel? Would you strengthen us as the church? And we pray that many more people in this city, in our families, in our workplaces, would by faith recognize the power of the gospel and join the family of the resurrection. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Mm -hmm.